most of the people listening to this podcast can never think of a single day where there wasn't something to eat in their house. Even if it's just a tin of spam, we've always got something to eat. We're talking about communities where day after day, there is nothing to eat. And so if you live there, you don't have time to look at the beauty of an animal. You look at its food value. You know, appreciating the beauty of a wild animal is a concept that can only be understood by someone with a full belly. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is a modern Huntsman production. I am currently in a city, as you can hear by the hustle and bustle around me, uh, which is why I will keep this intro fairly short. <laughs> I am on, back in the continent of Africa. I am in the country of Chad, and we are just about to embark on a, a very exciting uh, and very unique relocation project of a very rare species of antelope, which I will bring you more on in a future episode. Hopefully I'm gonna have time to record a podcast while I'm here. We've had a couple of weeks off the podcast um, after finishing the British Upland series, which was released every week. Um, so we had seven episodes over seven weeks uh, with a little break in the middle where I brought you a, a slightly different podcast. So if you're just joining us for the first time off the back of the British Uplands podcast, this podcast normally goes up every two weeks, give or take. Regular listeners will understand that because of travel schedules and filming schedules, sometimes I'm a little bit late to getting a podcast out, but we try and drop podcasts on a Thursday. This one is not being dropped on a Thursday because I'm trying to get this out right before uh, I get on a plane into the middle of nowhere for 10 days without any internet. We've had a lot of feedback from the British Upland series, um, and if you haven't happened to hear that, then please go and check it out. Um, it was a lot of work and a lot of fun to do I was able to collaborate with uh, my good friends, um, David Shanks, who was part of production and editing and scripting, and Sarah Roberts, who helped uh, me co-host the whole series. And then on the last episode, uh, episode six, you'll actually hear from Davey as well, because we all sat down in a room and discussed what we had kind of learned and what that journey had been over five episodes. In this episode, we are going back to a series that we started probably two years ago now called From the Field. Uh, that was based in Mozambique at Cotado 11 with Mark Haldane and we were following this amazing cheetah relocation story that had been funded by the Cabela Family Foundation. Uh, that was three episodes, it was very highly produced, you heard from multiple people and what I've been doing over the last couple of months is just revisiting those conversations that I had with everyone because we did seven or eight interviews, all probably about an hour long, uh, but you only heard 10-15 minutes from, from each person over those three episodes. And there was a lot more really insightful conversations there. So in this episode, you're going to hear from Ivan Carter from the Conservation Film Company, and I am joined by Tyler Sharp, Editor-in-Chief of Modern Huntsman, as we sit somewhere deep in the bush to talk about this incredible project. Ivan, welcome back to the show. It's been, it's probably been about a year since you were on, I think, or it, maybe more. It's two more years. than that, two, two, maybe even two and a half years. You know, time goes so fast that... Um, yeah, it's certainly been a while, but thank you for having me back. It's great. Well, the last two times, um, it's been over Zoom, <laughs> but now we're doing it in person, sitting in a clearing in Mozambique. No, it's fantastic. You know, not just a clearing in Mozambique, a clearing surrounded by primary forest, which in today's world is something rarer and rarer. So a really fitting place to be talking about conservation, I think. Absolutely. We have been here now for a couple of days. And we saw you come in two days ago now, I guess, with a plane full of cheetahs. 
explain to me what that how how important that relocation has been and and how it got kicked off in the first place you know it's amazing when you when you put effort into conservation very often you've got these high points of conservation and so obviously those three plane loads of cheetah touching down in Katada 11 that's a huge deal but really that was after literally years of research after you know a couple of decades of anti-poaching and stabilizing this ecosystem but to get back to the kind of core of your question why cheetahs you know really because they've gone from being one of the most widespread apex predators on the planet you know they occurred all the way through asia in fact they evolved in north america um, all the way through asia all the way to india all the way across Africa, everywhere in Africa that wasn't forest had cheetah. And now they've become one of the most endangered. And so really, I think as conservationists, we owe it to the species. We've got this available landscape. We should be doing everything to bring that landscape back to once it, what, what it once was. And I think, Byron, you can boil that down by, by simply saying, what is the meaning of conservation? So people will tell you, well, conservation is anti-poaching. Yes, that's true. It's collaring animals. Yes, that's true. It's translocations. Those are all true. But the holistic meaning of conservation is conserving the entire biodiversity of a system, a healthy system at that. This area used to have cheetah. It should have cheetah today. They were exterminated at the hand of man. And today, man is putting them back. So I believe that as a conservationist, it's, it's almost... It's our mandate to do everything we can to recover these ecosystems and get them back to once to what they once were. And so we we partnered with Endangered Wildlife Trust with a gentleman by the name of Vincent van der Merwe, who truly is a cheetah expert. And what a gentleman! Oh, he's a great guy. <laughs> we talked with him yesterday. Yeah, I know. I mean, I just wanted to speak to him for another two hours. And there's a guy driven and motivated by his own passion for the species. I mean, there's nothing that I, I, I haven't learned half of what he's already forgotten about Cheetah. So he was a fantastic partner. And what we, what we started off with was some conversation two or three years ago, actually, about what other species should be here. We had a lion reintroduction in 2018 that's gone very well. And we thought, okay, well, what else should be here that isn't here? And why is it not here? Did it used to occur here? And we found that cheetah was one of the other the other missing species here. And um, so we contacted Vincent. He came and looked at our landscape. And then we started to identify what it would take to actually make this move happen. And, you know, it's fierce. Can you hear that? Oh, uh, don't worry. Hey, we're <laughs> we're, we're going to roll with it. <laughs> yes, yesterday, we, we thought we'd be really quiet on the landing strip. And it was like vehicles driving past, obviously going to like different camps and people going out on anti-poaching. But I suppose that's what happens when you're recording a podcast in the bush outside the camp here. Well, that's yeah. exactly right. It is it's not a studio. It's, it's, a, well, it's our studio. It's the yeah, bush yeah. studio. It's Natural a studio. perfect studio. The best studio in the world. That's an anti-poaching team going out. I just saw them going by. But anyway, so so step one was identifying a viable number of cheetah. You can't do a reintroduction and bring in three animals. If something happens to one of them, you know, you, you now are relying on two animals to repopulate a landscape that's a million acres. And so really understanding how many we should bring, understanding where they're going to come from, that was all of the science and the foundational research that we had to do. Then we had to look and say, okay, did they actually occur here? Vincent got into the library in Maputo and he found some old journals and he found an old an old account of a guy that had actually come across some cheetah cubs right in this very area, a little bit north and east of here. And it's a really interesting historic part of the world, this, 
because literally 50 kilometers from us is where Mary Moffat Livingston is, is buried. So that was David Livingston's wife and her gravesite is right there. And these cheetah that were seen, you know, 90, 100 years ago were only about 50 miles from her gravesite. So it's this weird, this weird culmination of history and facts and finding there's something about reading an old journal if you do so in a quiet place, you can actually feel like you were there, especially when it's got stories about an area that we know so intimately. And so that little extract, it was only a page, but really made us all just get lost for a moment in the nostalgia of what it was like in those days. And that's the kind of thing that motivates certainly me and I know the rest of the team to make this all happen is, wow, is it not our duty to, as conservationists to bring that all back. And so we started getting serious about it. We identified game reserves in South Africa that had surplus cheetah that, that we were able to earmark for the project. Those cheetah were individually darted. They were transported to a central holding boma where they went through a whole bunch of disease testing and genetic profiling to make sure that they were as healthy as we thought they were. They spent a couple of weeks in that boma in South Africa and then we darted them, they got loaded onto the planes that you saw. And, you know, again, the biggest part of all of that from the time we said go and the time we'd identified the cheetah is the permits and permitting. You need to have a very specific vet that darts them. You need to have permits to dart them in the different provinces where they, they originally occurred. You have to have permits to move them. You have to have permits to hold them in a new province. You have to have import permits into the new province. You have to have a, a quarantine permit for your BOMA. You have to have a CITES export permit that's got a match with a microchip that was inserted when they were first touched. You've got to have the export permits, you've got to have a tax document to prove that you're exporting valuable goods and, and how that's being paid for. Then on the Mozambique side, you've got import permits, you've got CITES permits, you've got veterinary permits. So all of these permits, and these countries don't talk to each other, Byron. So <laughs> Mozambique was calling for permits from South Africa that hadn't been issued yet. South Africa was saying, well, we won't issue an export until you have an import and so we'd go to the import people and they say, well, we can't give you an import until you give us your CITES permit. We'd go back to South Africa and say, well, we're not going to give you a CITES permit until you've got an export permit, which we can't get until we've got the import permit. And so this whole mess, as much of a bowl of spaghetti as it sounds like when I'm telling you, it was like that. I mean, right to the 11th hour, Vincent was on the phone, phoning inspectors, trying to get permits. We actually put a vehicle on the road, our permit to export the cheetah was written at two o'clock in the afternoon the day before we exported them at seven o'clock the following morning. <laughs> Talk about wow. on the wire. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's just conservation is like that. And conservation is hard and it takes an incredibly tenacious team to say, okay, well, that's not a problem. We just put a car on the road and let's drive for seven hours and go and get this permit. Mm. You you just, know, just, just making it happen. Make it happen. Well, we get to customs and the paperwork's not filled out exactly right. Okay, what do we need to do to fix this? Okay, let's just do that. And, and I think that that is why these translocations, these big, uh, you know, the, these big international translocations are a very rare thing. You see a lot of translocations within a country and the permitting is still difficult for that. But as soon as you're working with two different governments, two different countries, two different veterinary permits. And so really it's, it's, it takes this incredible team. We've got amazing partners here in Mozambique. Uh, we partner with ANAC, um, 
which is the Mozambique equivalent of Fish and Game or, or the Wildlife Department. Um, we've got vets that work very closely with ANAC who've helped nurse our permitting through. Um, we've, we work very closely with the very best cheetah vets in South Africa. We've got Vincent on our team. Then, of course, you've got the anti-poaching here. You've got everything to create the landscape, everything to do the permitting, everything to do the actual logistics. And then, of course, one of the kind of unsung heroes of this whole deal is the guy who manages all the pilots and the planes because it's not everybody that wants a crate full of cheetah that are pooping and peeing <laughs> put in their executive aircraft <laughs> and you put them into a, a cargo plane, they're not going to survive. Yeah. So we removed the seats from these very fancy PC-12s and loaded them up. We lined them with plastic and loaded them up with cheetahs. And cheetahs go to the bathroom when cheetahs want to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 there's the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. Mm. But when you, when you land in an, a landscape where you know the cheetah haven't existed for over 100 years and you open those crates and these, these animals that are just, they're so dependent on conservation You know, you see those animals. You see them in this landscape for the first time and you look at the beauty of them and you look at how they're designed. They're designed, they're the, the ultimate speed animal. And you, you look at that and you just think, wow, we've... As a team, we've put these things back. This means a lot to you, Ivan. It does. Yeah. But, and you've been involved in a lot of stuff over the years. Why does this mean so much? What is it about this and this place? You know, I think what it is, is when you put, when you put so much effort Let me, let me back out a little bit. When, when you put a lot of effort into a landscape, whether it's finding money, whether it's anti-poaching, whether it's hours and hours of planning and preparation, and you start to see these massive steps. You know, when you start to see these massive steps that everybody tells you are impossible, and you realize that you've played a small role in them and you realize the, the, the strength of the team that you surrounded with. You know, I think, I think it, it's, it's something that very few people get to do, which is to have this amazing impact on a landscape, on, on the people in the landscape, on the species you're putting into the landscape. And I think that, you know, it's one of those deals where the, the, the more you the harder you work, the sweeter the reward. And so, you know, it's it's very seldom that one doesn't get emotional when you've, you're talking about a giant conservation success. You know, whether it's the, the, the first cheetah to leave their tracks in, in a landscape like this, whether it's when you watch a herd of elephants walking off a truck, you know, whatever it is, you realize that there's so many people out there that don't even try because it is so hard. And... 
you surround yourself with the right team and it doesn't make it easier, but it makes it possible. You know, and so I think that as as you see those cheetah run out of the crate, you guys were there, you filmed it, you photographed it, it you realize that this is the spectacular animal. It's probably the the best designed predator on the planet. It's desi- it's it's the perfect design. It's not to say that it's any better designed than a lion, but when you look at how well designed that is, and the fact that they were completely extinct in this area, and and we've we've brought them back, and and we have this opportunity to 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 have this impact. I think that's a big deal. It's something that is another truck. You know, it's it's something that's way bigger than just okay. Well, we put cheetah back into this area, you know, and I think that if you've got people around you that are equally passionate, if I if Clyde the pilot had said, you know what, this is too hard. My pilots are not eating. We're not flying the next leg. It would have failed. If Vincent had said, well, we haven't got a permit, it would have failed. If we hadn't been able to talk the inspector into waking up at three o'clock in the morning and driving to the airport because his car had broken the day before. It would have failed. And there's, there's these, these, you're on the brink of failure for 48 hours. Because as I always say, and I, I joke about it, Mark said, how's it going? I said, the gremlins are popping up, but I'm killing them as fast as they can come. <laughs> and that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're putting out fires yeah. in every direction, whether it's permits, whether it's, you know, somebody lost the gate code to get into the gate or, you know, one of the crates is not working properly or, you know, the, the, the vet's drugs got left in the sun and we had to replace them at short notice, whatever it might be. There's a thousand things that can go wrong with this thing. And having the kind of... I guess you could call it the lead position on that, where you've got these teams that you have to just trust them. And on purpose, I don't scratch in Vincent's salad when he's on the front line. I let him do his thing because he's the best there is at it. He keeps me updated, but I'm not going to try and phone the permit guy. I'm not going to try and get the permit. That's his deal. I'm not going to get into Clyde's stuff about, well, we thought we were going to have three cheetahs on this plane, but we've got four and now our car goes wrong. And that's his deal. You've got to trust those. And so surrounding yourself with a team that you truly trust i think is the the way that you make these things happen you know and and so yeah it's a it's a big deal when it works i think it's probably worth and we're going to speak to mark about this in yeah. more detail to like paint a picture of the history of this place but just sure. in a in a nutshell prior to establishing this cheetah population which is the ambition now mm-hmm. on the back of the success yes. of 21 lines 24, 24 yeah, lines 24 yeah um so let me there was a lot of work involved in there getting really this place to that so without doing an hour long history which we'll get from mark just to give people an idea what totally. was required to get to where we're sitting today so here's the 90 second version of that byron so 30 years of civil war meant a complete collapse of the infrastructure in this country And one of the things a lot of people don't realize is the word for animal and the word for meat in many, many African languages is the same word. And so it's a derivation of the word nyama. So nyama means animal and it means meat. And what that tells you is a tribal person looks at an animal as food first. So when a a country's infrastructure collapses and there's no food, the first thing that people look to is the wildlife for food. So at the end of a 30-year civil war, this area was almost devoid of wildlife. There was no lions. They'd all been killed by poaching. 
um, but they were killed as a byproduct because people would set these snare lines. So a snare is a, 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 like a wire noose or a trap, and they would they would line make these long lines several miles long of brush with gaps in it and a snare in every gap, and then push the animals towards it. So the lions would hear an animal in a trap, walk around as they do, and walk into a trap of their own. So the lions all disappeared. Most of the leopards disappeared. And you could walk around or drive around or fly around on the floodplain, and there was very few animals. Mark Haldane came into this area, and he's, he's an incredible leader. He's an incredible visionary. And he's also a guy who's very, very tenacious. And he came out here, and all of his mates, he'll tell you, told him, you're absolutely crazy. Why would you ever want to go to that place? There's no wildlife. It's very difficult access. It's muddy all the time. You can't have roads all year round. Why would you go there? He said, well, I see something is possible here. Mark came into this area and literally for 25 years, slowly, slowly built up the anti-poaching and started building back the wildlife by protecting it. As the area got better and better protected, the wildlife came from all the other unprotected areas into the area. So some little examples of that. From 44 sable, we've now got over 3,500. From less than 10 zebra, we've got several hundred. The buffalo were down to 1,200 individuals in the entire ecosystem. Now there's over 20,000. And so the wildlife truly exploded. We got engaged here because I came here actually to do a film about anti-poaching. And I saw the potential of this area. And I also saw that... As much as Mark was plowing back through his, his hunting operation, that the more we put back, the greater this landscape was going to become. And so we got engaged as a foundation and we started to support some anti-poaching and that grew. And then one day around a campfire, um, we said, imagine if we were sitting here, we heard lions. And I happened to be with a guy who has subsequently become one of our board members and we discussed it with Mark. He said, yes, we've discussed that many times. Wouldn't it be lovely? So I, I went, uh, yeah, we all dreamed about it. Mm. But I went home and I built a proposal. And I came to Mark and I said, this is what this could look like. He said, yeah, but who would ever fund that? Because it's a giant amount of money and logistics and we would need extra anti-poaching. And so I said, well, I tell you what, why don't we just fund a researcher? Let's do the research and let's get some solid scientific foundation and let's go from that. So we funded a researcher. We came in here and we decided that actually this would be a perfect place to put lions in. So then we were off to the races. So we started knocking on doors. And one of the doors we knocked on was Dan and Mary Cabela. Dick was unfortunately already, or had already passed away. And the Cabela Family Foundation was very interested in large landscape recovery stuff. And so Dan asked me some really, really hard questions. And he said, look, how do you know it's going to be successful? I said, well, we don't. He said, why do you think that this is possible? And I showed him the science. We showed him the documents. We showed him the evidence. We showed him the budget, which made him, his eyes go wide and he swallowed hard. <laughs> and he said, okay, well, you know what? We are can-do kind of people. We pride ourselves in being conservationists first. Let's try this. And so, you know, when, when I drove away from that house in Sydney, Nebraska, you feel like you've just received a positive pregnancy test because <laughs> you're pregnant. Yeah. You're going to have a baby. Yeah. Uh, up to now, it's all planning and whatever. Suddenly, someone has said they're going to write the check. Guess what? We're going to have to get our stuff together and make it happen. Yeah. So, as I say, that, that led to releasing 24 Lions here in 2018, which was a giant deal, also fraught with worry of its success. Here we are three years later to fast forward to today. 
We've got just around 70 animals. The success of that is what's given us the boldness to now try a much more sensitive species. We don't want to wait too long for the cheetahs because cheetahs, one of the big enemies of cheetahs is lions. And so if we waited until the lions are fully populated, the cheetahs wouldn't have a chance. And so there are a lot of landscapes across Africa where cheetahs have learned to live with lions. They're just agile and and they keep away from them. And so introducing these cheetahs at a time where the lions are not dominating the landscape, they're still growing, is is the perfect time, we believe. And so it's certainly we're not out of the woods, but we've gone through some of the very, very difficult steps so far. And and I think we're we're off on the right track anyway. I'll ask you a difficult question here. with all the massive NGOs that exist around the world that are focused on conservation and wildlife, why has it taken a family like the Cabela's to make something as amazing as, as this happen, where it hasn't happened before? You know, Byron, that's a really solid question. You know, our foundation, let me back out of this. Our foundation, our pay line is more wildlife and a healthier ecosystem. If your efforts are not leading to more wildlife and a healthier ecosystem, the cold hard truth is that it's wasted time. And so if you phone an NGO and say, I would like to put money into pangolin conservation, and they say, yes, yes, we do that. Can you show me how you are increasing the pangolin's home range and the number of pangolins in healthy ecosystems? If you get a silence on the end of the phone, phone somebody else because they need to know like that how their efforts are increasing landscapes. And unfortunately, Byron, the cold hard truth of it is most NGOs have become a business where they're in the business of selling hope. They sell hope. If and they fear. And fear. Hope and fear. So the last blue whale is about to die. Send us your money and we will save them. Okay, how? Well, I don't know, sir, but send us your money and we'll save them. Uh, no, I'd like to know how and show me your track record. Ha- have your efforts result in more blue whales? Because you told me there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can go round and round like that on just fill in the gap, what, whether it's a blue whale or, or you know a golden jackal or wh- whatever it might be. A lot of these NGOs focus on elephants or gorillas or whales or whatever. But really when you ask the hard question, have your efforts led to more of those? and more healthy landscape for them to live in, you get crickets on the end of the phone. Because pr- protecting what exists now is not enough. No. Because like, that's just holding the status quo at a really low baseline. It really is. And so if you look at what's happened in this area, if I show you the statistics of, I've just explained, 44 sable to over 3,500. That seems remarkable. It is. And it's taken, so we as a foundation put in about $650,000 into this landscape. The, our, our major partner with that is the Cabela Family Foundation who support all of the lion stuff, a proportion of the anti-poaching and, and all of that good stuff. They support the clinic. They support a bunch of the community stuff. But Byron, we don't have an office. Neither does the Cabela Family Foundation. We don't have overheads. We have conservation return. And what I say is that we pride ourselves in a conservation return on your investment. And so the Cabela Family Foundation, what they've achieved here for Lion is the greatest win for Lion of every single NGO on the planet. It seems, it seems crazy. Yeah. 
if you think of all the other, specifically if we're talking about lions, because there are a number of very specific lion conservation organizations out there. And that's true, Ivan? This that's is true. the biggest win for, for lions in our generation? So our translocation was the largest number of lions ever moved in one translocation and regained the largest area that was devoid of lions. We put two and a half million acres of wild lion habitat back on the map with our translocation. That's, That's amazing. never been done before. And, you know, when you look at it, I'm a very practical thinking person. There are many, many, many reintroductions that have failed. Five lions here, four lions there, three lions there, eight lions there. Why do you think we brought 24? Because we knew we were going to lose some. We practical, we can take the hard truth on the end of the nose. And we know that you're going to lose a bunch. So by bringing 18 females and six males we lost one male within two weeks of releasing him. He, he was exploring his territory and he walked into a snare and we lost him six weeks in. You know, and so, so you start looking there and you go, is this thing actually going to succeed? Imagine if we only had two males. You now are relying on one male to somehow survive for three years before his offspring can breed. It's de destined to fail. But by bringing enough and so that's why it's the largest cheetah translocation ever. We're going to bring a whole bunch next year as well. Because in reality, you cannot start and expect three or four delicate females to exist for five years before their kids can breed. It, it, it's not going to happen. They're a delicate, vulnerable animal. And so, so I think that a few things, rather than uh, another thing we're very, we very proud of, Byron, and you're going to laugh when I say this, both for the cheetah and for the lion translocation, as big a step as it was, there wasn't a single meeting in a boardroom. Not even one. There was meetings with the community. There was meetings with the vets. But nobody sat around a boardroom table having a meeting about the meeting. Because we don't have one. We don't have an office. We just have practical thinking conservationists on the front line who take those conservation dollars and turn them into wins. And, and I think that's what makes it unusual. It's also incredible that a conservation success story like this is funded through hunting dollars, or, or at least dollars that are working in conjunction with you know, sustainable hunting operations. Absolutely. And I think it's an incredible example to be able to, to point to and, and put, not on a pedestal, right, but, but put at the forefront of, of how these things can work together as a way to address, you know, the 80% of the global population who doesn't hunt and say, look, you know, this is, don't always believe what you hear. These are things that, that can be done and only done in this case with, with the cooperation don't of organizations. You. And I, I always call those the, the uncomfortable truths because sometimes it, the world around us today wants the comforting lie. They don't want the uncomfortable truth. So don't worry, it's all going to be okay. Hunters are bad people, don't worry. Well, here's a great example. So, so one of our greatest anti-poaching measures in this area is our distribution of free meat. The free meat comes as a byproduct of the professional hunting that happens here. And COVID notwithstanding, because last year we didn't have any people visiting, but the year before that, we distributed 66 tons of meat. So 66 tons of meat into a population of just a couple of thousand people meant that everybody got free meat, but they stand to lose that free meat if we catch them poaching. So through our community development programs, which include plowing so they've got sustainable crops, they've just reaped 200 tons of rice, getting 66 tons of meat, 
getting school, getting clinic. We've got a bee project where we have nearly 400 hives in the field where you know we, we've got a, a program to put hives out where the community owns those hives. Well, we own them. The community shepherds them and then they get paid per kilogram of honey that comes out. So what's basically happened is in this block, every village has got an income through the honey. They've all got food, which we plow for and we give them seed and fertilizer for. They've got access to a school, access to a clinic and free meat. So your community is actually not hungry. And you cannot do that level, particularly the meat part, without the hunting component. So what you say is absolutely true. The professional hunting model is what's created the land use business. We've taken that land use and expanded upon it where Mark Haldane still puts money straight into his anti-poaching and we subsidize that. And the reality is it's there is no greater conservation success story across Africa in a landscape like this. They're all declining. You're hearing all these stories about declines and I don't, I don't live in fear and, and doom. I live in hope and bright future. And so if you want to live there, you better start creating some, bud, because there's not a lot of it. So you must create some. And that's exactly what we've got here. You know, I think that at least in our experience, having conversations with a lot of, let's say, Westerners who aren't familiar with how hunting works in Africa, that one of the biggest obstacles or pain points or misunderstandings is you know, that, that local villages or local communities are, are being either taken advantage of or marginalized uh, for people's own gain. And so maybe touch on the, the absolute critical imperativeness of working with the community. Um, otherwise, it, it doesn't work. So here's, here's a great quote to enlarge on that, Tyler, is that you cannot, you cannot solve a third world problem with a first world solution. And so discussing conservation around a boardroom in New York or Chicago, you're not discussing conservation. You're discussing the funding of conservation. If you really want to discuss conservation, you need to go and sit under the mango tree with a community that lives with conservation and try to turn them into conservationists through beneficiation programs, through education, through health programs. Because if your community is not your partner, you cannot succeed. There's not, you know... There's not enough money in the world to protect this just with guns and game scouts. If your community is on sides, your guns and your game scouts become a component, but it's not the most crucial component. By far the most crucial component is your community engagement, your community buy-in, and the benefit programs where they can directly see a benefit. And so do they really care about the wildlife? Everybody wants to think so, but I can tell you right now they don't because they care about tomorrow's livelihood. So most of the people listening to this podcast can never think of a single day where there wasn't something to eat in their house, even if it's just a tin of spam. We've always got something to eat. We're talking about communities where day after day, there is nothing to eat. And so if you live there, you don't have time to look at the beauty of an animal. You look at its food value. You know, a Appreciating the beauty of a wild animal is a concept that can only be understood by someone with a full belly. Yeah. And so really when you look at it from that perspective, if you are – so let's imagine the three of us had our families and we lived in a village on the edge of Yellowstone Park. And we each had nine kids and tired wives and we were trying to feed those children and there was no food. And suddenly the elk migration comes through. And we pop over the boundary 
and we each kill an elk. Most people say, well, that, that would be okay because it's for your survival. What if we represent 5,000 families living around that park and 5,000 people each kill an elk twice in one year? That's 10,000 elk that got killed, but it's okay because it was for survival. Is that not the entire population of elk in Yellowstone? <laughs> I think that's it what, probably is. That's almost. why I'm using those yeah, numbers. Okay. <laughs> so then people say, well, no, no, then that's not okay. Okay, so where's the line between okay and not okay? So then you say, well, if it's okay to steal an elk from Yellowstone, is it okay to walk into Walmart just because you're hungry and steal a chicken out of the freezer section? Oh, no, 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 that's not okay. Well, why not? Because Walmart owns that chicken. Well, does the park not own the elk? Well, I guess so. Is it not public land? Yes, but then it belongs to all of us. It still belongs to someone. But this idea of wildlife not belonging to someone makes people feel like, well, it would be okay to just have it so the general public can, can... And so I think it's quite a complex conversation. I really do. But I definitely think that coming back to your core point, Tyler, is that the reality is you cannot you cannot be successful in African conservation unless you include Africans in your equation. Um, you know, and, and that's why well, it's you It's a very see, arrogant standpoint to assume that you, you could be successful. It's a very Western viewpoint like really, to impose conservation upon upon people who live in a landscape i think and yet it is the old way yeah it's the old colonial way and so byron we did a survey as when i say we and uh, we support the southern african wildlife college and they did a survey where they interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people on the outside of kruger national park okay. and kruger national park's got a hard boundary what i mean by that is there's an impenetrable fence around it and those people living on the outside of the fence saw that as a place that was set aside with wild, for wildlife that only wealthy white people could go and look at. That was their perception. Right or wrong, that's their perception. We have to take into account the reality of their perception. Mm. That, that, Same with Atosha. They did a similar survey in Atosha as well. And so how do we make those people feel some ownership and some benefit? So as a result of that survey, they took it to the parks board and they said, okay, let's ask the people what they would like from the park. Well, they wanted to cut thatching grass which is fine. They wanted to collect worms in the worm season because they eat the Mapani worms. That's fine. And some of the old ladies wanted to dig some certain roots and stuff like that. So they said, okay, well, let's set a quota and we'll bust these people in. We'll give them some, some guards so they don't bump into elephants and stuff and allow them to cut their thatching grass and whatever. And then now let's go to the tourist and say to the tourist, if you knew that the community were benefiting from our park and on your game drive you happened to see a lady cutting grass for her hut, would that bother you? There was a resounding no, it wouldn't bother us, provided we knew that was the deal. And so all of a sudden, the hard line between the people and the wildlife starts to become blurry because the people start being allowed to come across and benefit in a way. They didn't want to come and kill elephants. They wanted to come and benefit from the land. And so now that they do... Probably land they used to be on at some point in the past. Totally, yeah. totally. So, so really, it's a very complex deal. There's a lot of politics uh, uh, surrounding that. But, you know, in this part of the world, we've, we've managed to have a lot of the community move into one area. So it's almost like sacrificing, you know, three or 400 hectares of land on which we've put the school and the clinic and all of the villages have congregated there because that's where we are making sure they're getting their benefit. And that means that your people are easier to look after because they're together. Your, when I say look after, that sounds very arrogant. Your people are, are in a place where their benefit can be more concentrated. 
And you've also got a landscape which is larger and healthier for the wildlife because you haven't got villages through your whole landscape. So instead of plowing a hundred little one hectare blocks, you plow one block of a hundred hectares, which will always yield better anyway. And everybody lives around that block and benefits from it. And that happens to be a short walk from the school, a short walk from the clinic, and a short walk from clean water, and one place for us to go and distribute meat to. So it's perfect. So we've set up this almost little little village complex where everybody's healthy, everybody's happy, the kids are able to all go to school, which is impossible if they scattered through the landscape. Is there another way to fund something like this? Because that's the argument that always gets thrown up, like Tyler... Um, brings up the fact that so so much of this, the ability to, to fund this place comes from, from hunting dollars. The argument that gets thrown is, well, that's fine, but we could also fund it through this mechanism or, you know, or phototourism is the one that gets thrown up a lot. Is there another way to fund that? And does it really matter? So, so here in, in particular here. So Byron, there's, there's only five land uses, only five. Everybody says, no, there's hundreds of ways you can use land. No, there isn't. There's only five. So we can settle on it. So think of the land in between Dallas and Fort Worth. That was at one point prairie. And it's been highly modified by people settling on it. We can use it to draw our minerals out of, so we can mine it. We can farm it to grow our food, which is how millions of acres across the planet, and that's highly modified. Not a living thing grows in the soybean field that is there to feed the vegetarian to look after wildlife um, and then you've got tourism in two different ways photo tourism or hunting tourism and so they are the only two mechanisms that you can utilize your land without modifying its ecosystem but both of those have to be done responsibly so i like to use the word responsible resource use are we using our resources responsibly so we are sitting right now, and you guys can't see it, but we're sitting in, in camp chairs. We're all wearing clothes. These clothes were grown in a cotton field. We've got all kinds of, all of our equipment that's on our heads and whatever is made out of crude oil. We've got, you know, plastic and metal. Everything that is on and around us right now used to at one point be a natural resource. And it's been mined, in some cases responsibly or not, but nevertheless, humans cannot live without resources. Wildlife is a resource. Are we utilizing it responsibly is the whole nother question. Is it responsible to build a big fancy lodge, pump a million liters of water out of the water table, create a waterhole in an area where one never used to exist so that your non-hunting tourists can have less impact? That may or may not be responsible. It's not responsible if that leads to modifying that ecosystem by virtue of its impact. And it's exactly the same with hunting. You can say, well, one hunter generates the same amount of money as a, you know, depends on the landscape, 100, 200, 500 tourists, whatever the number is, it doesn't matter. But he can also have a negative impact if his quota is too high, if he's hunting unsustainably, et cetera, et cetera. So the responsible use of the resource is really a very important part of that conversation. So if you look at the data of the animals' populations in this area that are independently measured each year, you see the population going up. How can that happen if we're overhunting it? It wouldn't be going up, they'd be going down. So we take almost a 1,000 animals a year off this landscape they generate money to feed the landscape. They generate meat to feed the people. 
And it's done in a way that's responsible enough that the rest of the population carries on growing. Very hard to argue that. <coughs> so I can give you a, a, a true-to-life example of something that happened about three months ago. So there was a, la a, a, a big farm that was associated with Kruger National Park. It's part of the Greater Kruger System, which means it's private land adjoining the park. It changed hands. And Is this down the western side, that string uh, of private So it's reserves? down the western side, yeah. yes. So it was several hundred hectares. So it wasn't absolutely, it might have been a couple of thousand hectares, whatever the number, it doesn't matter. That's not the point of the story. What, re what happened is these guys took over. They looked at it and they said, well, this lodge is not really viable because there's less seats on airplanes than beds and lodges at this point. So there's too much competition amongst the photographic tourism. So our other alternative is to hunt it. And they said, well, we don't want to get involved in the anti-hunting mess that's going on in that landscape right now. There's a huge amount of anti-hunting protests and so on. So let's not do any of that. So they fenced themselves out of the Kruger, took all of their wildlife off, and, and planted an orange, an orange orchard. Nobody bothers them. They left to their business. So who was the loser? Is the wildlife. And so as a result of this anti-hunting pressure, the wildlife has lost a few thousand hectares of very viable wildlife land that could have been very well utilized from a hunting perspective and fed that family very well. But instead, they've got oranges. And nobody bothers them I with oranges. Wow. And so, really, when you look at these real, true-to-life, modern examples, this is not pontification. These are just facts. And the unfortunate thing for, for people is that facts don't lie. They're facts. And they're stubborn. And they will be facts tomorrow as well. And the next day, that, if it is a fact, it's stubborn. A fact doesn't lie, and facts are stubborn. And what I've just explained to you is is a fact of anti-poaching guys anti-poaching on, on, <laughs> on their bikes with AKs on their backs. <laughs> what a sight! That's never happened in a podcast for yeah. another anti-poaching guy oh, on his yeah. motorbike. Another, another AK. <laughs> <laughs> go get them, boys! I mean, why do you think, in particularly like in the last three, four, or five years, there's been this increasing uh, conversation and focus on? sustainability and the sustainable use of natural resources but wildlife always seems to kind of be excluded in that because i uh, because in my mind people don't like the idea of utilizing wildlife but we're very happy to utilize livestock so baron this is an interesting conversation i i, I like this stuff a lot i think it's really simple humans have reached critical mass and for the first time ever in history Every one of us that is socially aware, that is aware of our environment, has seen the negative pressures on that environment, whether it's plastic in the oceans, whether it's, you know, it's, it's overfishing, wh whatever it is. We've all seen these negative impacts that did not exist when I was a kid because we hadn't reached critical mass yet. And when you look at, in my lifetime, I'm 50 years old, in my lifetime, in the last 50 years, what's happened to the human population, that curve is going through the sky. And it's not showing any sign of slowing down. And so I think that your average cognizant human that's socially aware says, wow, this planet's under pressure. But the interesting thing is we are not hardwired to care about anything that doesn't affect us. 
And I really honestly believe that until we switch on the faucet in your home and plastic comes out, people won't care about plastic. It's got to affect that person directly for them to stop using it. Because we've proven that. We only start waving it. So so think in 2016, the last male northern white rhino died. That's not a little mouse that no one knew. It's an animal the size of your dining room table. We are so busy trying to make our smartphone batteries last longer that we forgot about this animal the size of your dining room table that slipped off the brink of extinction in modern times. That's not excusable. It really isn't. It comes back a little bit into how our conversations start about why cheaters. Why anything? And so I think as humanity, we've really become very cognizant of what we're doing to this planet. There's 8 billion of us today, which is a massive number of people. And, you know, then you, you come to why could we, we're happy to eat livestock, but we're not happy to eat a kudu. You know, 96% of all mammals on earth are humans and their livestock and pets. 96%. So everything from a chimpanzee to a bat, from, a, from an elephant to a whale to a, is, is every other mammal represents only 4%. So when you start looking at those kind of statistics, so then you say, you, you hear people say, well, I would never eat a whitetail because I think it's cruel. Okay, cool. So you'll eat a cow, but in order for that cow to exist, all of the wildlife has to be eliminated first. And that's fine because they don't see it. Then the cut so if, they feel like nothing's dying, there's no bloodshed for that, but that's that's living in blinkers, yeah. And so, the, the, the most common large animal on the planet is a cow. Why is that? It's very simple because we can buy it, we can sell it, we can trade it, it has value to us. If you had the same thing with giraffes where you could buy and sell and trade them and own them and eat them, and we'd have giraffes instead of cows. And everyone would go, wow, there's this really rare thing. It's called a cow. And, you know, people <laughs> used to eat it. And now all we've got is giraffes. Because it's true. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a story once called Rhinos Are Like Potatoes. Imagine if they outlawed potatoes today, which is one of the most widespreadly grown vegetables. And they outlawed it. And they said, you are no longer allowed to trade it. It's going to be heavily protected. It can't cross international boundaries. It's not allowed to be sh- sold in stores, you are not allowed to even own a potato. How quickly would the farmers who grow millions of potatoes stop growing potatoes? Today, they'd stop and they'd grow carrots. And in a very short space of time, potatoes would be endangered because they have no value. And that's exactly what's happened to the rhino. And so I think there's a lot of parallels if you explain it through these analogies that hopefully people can understand. Because rhino were brought back from the brink of extinction already once through trade. Now we're anti-trade and everyone's trying to get rid of their rhinos again because they're a liability instead of an asset. Yeah, a huge burden. Huge! I don't think, I don't think the rest of the world actually realizes just how much a lot of private owners, which is the majority of rhinos in the world, exist on private land. I mean, Kruger's lost more than half the rhinos that they've had what I, I was speaking to Mick Riley the other day he reckoned 8,000 down to maybe 3,000 if you're lucky and we we they brought that back from a handful of animals less than 100 yeah and so and now right, we're in the situation where once again we are facing losing a species because outside pressure doesn't fully understand the mechanisms which allowed them to proliferate in the first place and recover. 
Yeah, I think I think that's true, Byron. And I also think that social media has got a lot to answer for because social media influences public opinion. Public opinion influences a vote and a vote influences conservation mandates. And so you sitting in New York, someone sends you a picture of a rhino with its face chopped off and says, we should stop all trade in rhino. You know nothing. You say, okay, yeah, but I'll vote for that. Yeah, you like shit, yeah. Yeah, this rhino's just had his face hacked off. Yeah, of I don't want that to happen. I yeah. want that to stop. And if my little signature can help that stop, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But there's always a much more complex narrative around it. It's like these people that are anti the oil industry. Okay, so what do you want to use instead? Well, I don't know. Somebody I, must I want figure big that out. Lithium mines everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but think about it. What's the what's yeah. the most common answer? I don't know. Someone will figure it out. So, every button on your shirt. Every piece of plastic in your life, uh, these headsets, that's all oil. Most of the paint, all of the asphalt roads, and and yet people are so naive as to say we don't want to use oil. Okay, let's try it. Show me what your life will become if you truly are anti-oil. As you jump on the airplane to fly to the anti-oil seminar. (laughs) As so many politicians do. (laughs) So think about it. So, So wildlife is no different except that because... So I think wildlife can be divided into two broad categories. If I'm rambling too much. No, no, no. I'm just making sure that we're still recording (laughs) because I don't want to lose anything. So so wildlife can be divided into two very broad categories. This is very non-scientific, by the way. Charismatic species and non-charismatic species. And I've done an experiment before where you look at a photo of a charismatic animal, a lion, an elephant, a leopard, dead on social media. There's no good that can come from that. I don't care how good the narrative is that associated with it. It's a charismatic species and there's millions of people that believe there's never an excuse for that animal to die. You show another picture of a wildebeest or a crocodile or a, fish. Or a buffalo <laughs> or a fish. No problem. People don't care. And so whether we like it or not, whether we believe in it or not, if we don't learn to accept that there's charismatic species and non-charismatic species, even a cheetah is not really a charismatic species because nobody really cares about them for some reason. People far more care about a lion than a cheetah. You say to Lion some people, King. There was yeah. no cheetahs in Lion King, I don't think. Well, you say to people, <laughs> hey, well, well, we're going to go and translocate cheetah. Really? Well, why, why would you do that? Well, they're endangered. Oh, well, that's cool. You say we're going to go and translocate. Like, really? Wow, lions. Cool. Well, where are they coming from? And, you know, they're, this charis- they're the king of all beasts. They're this charismatic species. And so I think that if we can use that as conservationists, so we as a foundation, we look for he- what we call heroes of a landscape. So the heroes of this landscape is the lion. The Cabela's would not have involved, got involved with cheetah without being preceded by lion. The cheetah have come second, but the lion, the face of a lion is, think of what it's done for this landscape. Think of the visibility and the, why are you guys here? Because of the lions. The Cabela's wouldn't have chatted to you guys if you hadn't seen what was going on with 24 lions and said, wow, that's a cool story. We'd like to see what's going on. Well, there's even a bigger story coming because we're putting cheetah. Wow, well, that's cool. But the lion is the hero of this landscape because it's the most charismatic animal we have out there and people are prepared to spend millions of dollars to influence what they perceive is a great path for lion populations. And so I use the words carefully, they perceive, because when you're living in a high-rise in New York, what do you know? You saw Lion King once, so you're always going to vote for the lion, no matter what. 
And so if somebody shows you a picture of someone that's killing a lion, managing a lion, doing something that's perceived to be horrible to a lion, you're going to vote against that, period. And you get 50 million people doing that, you influence policy, and that influence on policy can influence a whole, a whole, a whole economy of, of, of that wildlife. Byron asked Vincent a tough question last night about, you know, being, being a cheetah expert and, and translocating, and, and obviously there's no hunting of cheetahs here, but there, there are hunting of cats in, in other areas. As, as somebody whose life is so invested in cat conservation, how does it make him feel uh, to know, you know that, that hunting of a leopard exists or something like that, right? And, and he very quickly responded with, with the, the fact that it's, it's about the greater population and not the individual. Right. You know, it, that, that's a very, very good point, Tyler. And if in five years' time we had 60 cheetahs out here and someone said, okay, well, you know what? Some of your males are old and we will allow you to shoot one a year and we'll give you $350,000 for that one cheetah. Now suddenly the cheetahs are paying for their own protection. Is that not a great model? If you take the charismatic, you know... The whole, take the charismatic part, if it's just purely a business model, then people say, of course, that's a great idea. Why would we not do that? Why would we not use a resource to protect the resource? Because in a landscape like this, that is the best way to to generate funding. So getting back to Rhino for just a second, um, you know, a great phrase that I really like to use is that there's no greater product than Rhino horn for turning grass into gold. Think about that. All the rhino does is eat grass, and all he needs is a safe place to eat grass. And from that animal, you can get the most valuable commodity on the planet, more valuable than diamonds, cocaine, anything else, just as long as he's got a safe place to eat grass. Think about that. And it's us as humans that have complicated that model. If we were able to just sell its horn and use that money to protect its landscape, there'd be thousands of rhino, because every mouthful of grass he eats, he can turn it into gold. So what do you, and I, I think this is maybe something we, we touched on briefly, I think maybe the first time we even talked on a podcast, but, but I think it, it's worth bringing up again because it's very much in people's minds right now. What do you say to those who say, well, that's fine, but um, we banned ivory, the ivory trade for a reason, and that was to protect uh, elephants. And you look at something like, like the ivory game, a very so let, well-known let's, documentary. Let's play that game. Ask me that question. So... Will it make it worse if we trade the horn of rhinos? How did, how's the ban going for you? For ivory. Terribly. <laughs> How many more elephants are there on the planet as a result of the ban? There's less. How many more rhinos are there as a result of the stopping of trade? There's less. Okay, let's keep the ban. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good game, Ivan. <laughs> So if you think about it like that, let's take but why all... Do, but, I mean, that's, it's so obvious. When you, when you paint the picture like that, and w my answers are truth, you can, anybody is welcome to go and check those numbers up. But why can people not get their head around that then? When it's very clear, if you look at the graphs of rhino populations and elephant populations, they're in one direction, and that is down. It's an uncomfortable truth, and people don't want that. They want the comforting lie. And that's, that's how society is today. Oh, don't worry. You're not fat. You're just heavy. And it's in your <laughs> genetics. One of the most comforting lies that is told in the first world almost every single day. 
And so, don't worry, the rhinos are going to be fine. We've put a ban on. It's a comforting lie. It's not the truth. The ban has never worked. Not with one single species has the ban worked. And there's examples. is another example. Actually. There's example after example after example of trade bringing them back. Crocodiles. Trade brought them back. The alpaca in South America got down to less than 10 animals and the visuna. And they decided that, well, let's try and trade because everyone wants their wool. And now there's over a million of them because of trade. They're all in private hands and they're all... They're all traded. The crocodile industry for, was nearly wiped out by, by the illegal trade for the leather industry. Now you've got crocodile farms all over Africa. Everywhere. And there's millions of crocodiles. Yeah. And they were nearly extinct. And so there's several real live examples. The rhinos that, that almost crashed. There were less than 100 individuals and they went back up to 35,000 southern white rhinos because of trade. And so it's this uncomfortable truth that trade works. And so very often people say, well, can't we just teach the Chinese people to not use rhino horn? And if it's a lady that's saying that, I'll look and I'll say, let's talk about your diamond. And she'll look and she'll take a step back. I'll say, where did that diamond come from? Oh, my husband gave it to me for a wedding, whatever. Okay, well, that's cool. Where did it come from? Well, I don't know. Well, did you see the movie Blood Diamond? No, I didn't see that movie. And? Well, I'm sure this one didn't come from there. Well, how do you know? Well, it just didn't. So here's a product that a Western person has put such value on. We can even make them in a laboratory in the form of cubic zirconias, but we still want the real thing, even if we know that kids in the third world are dying because we are removed from it. And so as human beings, we are hardwired to to be absorbed in our self-satisfaction and so how would you expect a Chinese person with 15,000 years of culture yeah. of utilizing rhino horn, why would they turn away from it? We do the same thing with different things. And so, oh no, but rhino horn results in pain for the animal. Well, diamonds result in pain for people. There's no different. And so when we draw these parallels, it becomes a very uncomfortable conversation for the people wanting the comforting lies. You know, and so I think that, you know, very often at the end of these these kind of podcasts, I get a bunch of hate mail because I talk fairly directly. I say, no problem. I don't care if you hate me. But if you hate me for telling the truth, I'm actually pretty pretty proud of that. I'm going to – hopefully, if I have time uh, before we have to fly out of here, I'm going to sit down with Sean because I think uh, it'll be a great conversation with him from the, the filmmaking mindset. But uh, maybe if I can kind of bring this conversation to a close to talk about the kind of films that you and Sean work on with the conservation film company and your kind of vision for a new direction in documentary filmmaking. Because there's a lot of documentaries out there, some of which I would argue are not actually even documentaries. They're environmentalist films or wildlife rights films with an agenda dressed up as documentaries. What do you try and do when your team tackles a documentary about conservation? So first and foremost, the very most important thing, if you want to teach somebody something while they're watching a film, you must entertain them. So it has to be an entertaining story. It has to be 100% truthful, and it has to be shot in an incredibly artistic, cinematic way so that people remain entertained. So if you want to talk about whale hunting, and you go online and you find this long, boring documentary. Every word might be true, 
but you've got a bunch of talking heads of this scientist and that scientist and this ocean researcher and this marine biologist and whatever. You get 15 minutes in and you go, whatever. Then you get a documentary that focuses on a hero for whales and you start to understand that person's life and you start to understand what they're up against and you start to vote for them during your, your you start to think, well, I hope they succeed and you create entertainment. You don't even realize it, but you're being educated along the way. And so what we always, it sounds a, it sounds a little bit kind of up in the air, but we like to tell stories on that thin line where humans and wildlife meet. We want to know the community perspective. We want to know the truth of their perspective. We want to know what the conservationist thinks. We want to know what's really being done for the species. But we also have to show that in a way that it's exciting and entertaining and incredibly well filmed. And I think so often today when you look at the ratings, today we live in a digital, a digital delivery world, which means we can, we can track every eyeball that falls on every piece of media at all times. You know, everything that you look at on your phone is tracked. Everything that you look at with your smart TV is tracked. Everything that you look at on your computer is tracked. And unfortunately, what people are seeing is nobody's watching the the hardcore conservation documentaries. When we were kids, we would sit for hours watching Discovery and Nat Geo and whatever. They were all animal stuff. You look at it now and it's all reality with gold mining or ice road truckers or, you know, big wheel mudders or, you know, whatever you got. I don't know what they even called. But none of the wildlife stuff is getting any traction. And the reason is it doesn't have story. It's just, and the reason the likes of Attenborough do so well, if you listen to his documentaries, you rarely feel engaged in that particular animal. So the last remaining cheetah struggles into the night. You know, you want to know what happened. And you, as dramatic as it is, it's entertaining because you've got to watch the next chapter to see if she survives and finds her lost cub that got washed away in the river. None of that is reality happening in front of that camera, but it's things that do happen in the wild and they've got this incredibly good formula of telling that story in a way that engages you. Whether it's a shrimp in the sea, a whale, they, they do that very, which is why it's the last standing real documentary of our time. You don't see all these documentaries because kids are not that interested in wildlife. They want to be entertained. So if we can entertain them while we're showing them hard conservation, that'll become a part of conversations in the household during and after that thing happens. And that's how minds are changed. Jeepers, did you guys see that documentary about the cheetah translocation that happened in Mozambique? Well, where's Mozambique? Yeah, you must watch this thing. Wow, I had no idea X, Y, Z, and they... They have all these facts that are very handed to them on a very entertaining plate, if you will, you know. What's next for you, Ivan, and and the things that you're involved in that you can tell us about? So we I mean, do a lot a of these. This is a pretty big pinnacle right this here. Is, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we're going to do anything nearly this big this year. We are undertaking the largest move of giraffe that's ever been undertaken internationally. We're going to be moving a, a bunch of giraffe. I can't tell you too many details, but they're going to be coming from Kruger National Park and going to a reserve in Mozambique. Um, and there's going to be a bunch of them. Um, and you know, again, you're taking a very important animal out of a landscape where there's plenty. I'm not going to say too many because there aren't, but there's plenty. And you're putting them in a landscape where there's very, very few. And that's going to be a giant step. And we're going to expand the wild giraffe's home range by a million acres in one move. 
You know, it's a move that's going to take several months, but you know, it's it's something that when you start getting it, is you get addicted to this stuff because when you start having these wins, so so you know, it's not the same. You move cheetahs, and next week we're going to buy boots for the game ranges. No, we can't do that. We've got to do these bigger and 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 so every time we do these things, Byron, I keep a book, a specific book about what could be done better, what went very well, how we make this model better and better and better. And every single one of them is is informed by good science. You've seen our scientific team here. You've seen they, they're all crazy scientists. I love it. But what they measure matters. It's like any <laughs> like business. I don't want to leave. No, because <laughs> I just want to steal knowledge from these guys. Yeah. <laughs> and without that, how do we know what our next step's got to be in yeah. this area? So the next thing for this area is the release of the cheetahs, which is going to be a huge deal in three or four weeks' time, and then the monitoring of the cheetah, and then we'll take a breath. Because if we follow too quickly on the heels of the cheetah, it doesn't give them a chance to really succeed. So we probably not going to even look at another species into here for the next couple of years. We know what it's going to be, but you'll have to come and see when it when it happens. No, don't worry. But, don't, I won't need much of an excuse to come back another time <laughs> will either. But, but you know what? I'm hoping that year after year, you guys make this an annual trip because I want you to see and be part of what's going on here because it's some cool stuff. Um, and in the coming days, you'll see the community stuff. Yeah, I can't you're wait gonna, for that. You're going to see the anti-poaching guys. We'll do a big parade of them. Um, you, you'll see how we've cracked the code on that. Um, th- there's a lot of cool stuff that goes on here. So, Ivan, you're obviously a get-shit-done kind of guy, <laughs> right? And and you have a remarkable track record of, of projects like this, obviously culminating in something like the lions and, and now the cheetahs. But, you know, we've been talking about all these things with, with the day-to-day problems, uh, you know, of, of lack of awareness or understanding. And I know Byron's asked this question of other podcast guests before, but in your opinion, people listening to this, right, who maybe aren't involved in conservation or, or maybe they're not even hunters, what what can they do? What What is your advice or, or your mandate towards anyone listening who has been affected or moved by what you've said, um, what what can they do? So I think the, the most important thing is educate themselves. We try very hard as a group, the Cabela Family Foundation, ourselves at Ivan.Carter on Instagram, um, Cabela Family Foundation on Instagram, Zambezi Delta Conservation on Instagram, you guys are modern huntsmen. We all trying really hard to give very good information so that people can learn more. And what our hope is that if a thousand people listen to this, someone says, you know what, I want to put my hands on conservation and give us a call. We'd love to have you here where you have an adventure that's more than just a vacation. It's got this impact that goes on and on and on. What's it like, you know, translocating giraffes into a landscape where they never existed before and your family did that and forever they have reestablished a giraffe population and you had this amazing adventure doing it. Conservation is expensive. It really is. And bringing people to the front line and having them put their hands and their money on the on the animal simultaneously, it eliminates the question of, did my money have an impact? Because you're there to see that impact. You're there to see the people who are making that impact happen. And I think very often, you know, you don't realize the logistics behind these things and the expense of it. You know, it, it was nearly $100,000 just in aircraft to bring the cheetah here. And, you know, without the aircraft, the risk goes up. And it becomes impossible to get them in here in a timely manner without aircraft. But that's a hundred grand. 
And so monitoring them is $100,000 of just chopper time before the pilots or, or anybody else or the scientists or the anti-poaching. Or So, you know, when, when I say get engaged, I think step one is learn about us on our Instagram accounts and, and whatever. If you, if you want to get through those accounts onto our websites and stuff like that, the more you learn, hopefully the more passionate you'll become. Have a look at the Conservation Film Company. Have a look at some of our films. Um, because every step of the way, we're trying to educate people and get more people engaged in conservation. Last question from me. It's been amazing for me, but I, I, I'm interested to know your your thoughts on it. To see the, this extensive Cabela family, who you've mentioned you know, multiple times as a big driving force behind the funding of what's been going on here, but all here while this is going on. How important is it to have those next generations who are ultimately going to be making this happen in the future here now while this is happening? So yesterday we had a group of them, you guys were, were in the chopper with them, and they physically put their hands on, the, on a lion. And that's an amazing thing. You put your hands on a lion. But it wasn't just any lion. It was a lion that their grandma and their uncle put here. And three years ago, there weren't any. And so what I hope is that, you know, the extended Cabela family is many, many, many people. Mary was, was she, she had eight children. And so there's a huge extended family. If a third of them or a quarter of them get impassioned by their visit here, you know, I think that in today's world, unfortunately, the young people are further away from wildlife than a, a generation has ever been. They're so caught up in their social media and their smartphones and everything that gets thrown in them through, through their social media and electronics that wildlife ceases to be as important as it was for me as a kid where the thought of even having a cell phone wasn't even – it wasn't thought of yet. And so there was no such thing as screen time. It wasn't even a phrase. You know, we were outside running around and building tree houses and making fires. And know? dams. And That's dams. what I was doing. Dams yeah. and ditches. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's rivers. what I did. Fishing and <laughs> catching butterflies and all that stuff. You don't see kids doing that anymore. You drive around a neighborhood, there's not a single, you will not see a child with a butterfly net. When we were kids, we all just did that. You know, and so I think that if we can impassion the, gen the next generation, and that's where I think, you know, the leadership of Mary Cabela, she's, she's truly... You know, she's an amazing person in conservation, but really when it's all boiled down to the most important thing for her is she's, she's someone's grandma. And if she can put the passion that she has for what she's seen into her grandchildren, then she feels completely satisfied. And I completely agree with that philosophy. And so when you see Dan and Mary come the first time, the second time they come with a few family members, and now they've come with a bunch of family members, that just makes me happy because their ownership of this project means it's going to be here for a long time, you know. Ivan, this has been a wonderful conversation. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing it with us and uh, sharing the space with us. And, and the anti-poaching anti guys roaring up and down. I know. Did you, I don't know if you noticed this, but they drove past and then one of them walked back because they'd obviously like seen something. Oh, <laughs> really? No, yeah, I didn't yeah, see yeah. that. He just walked back and then he like, I don't know, maybe he heard your voice or something <laughs> and he turned around and to walked the sure other way. To make sure that it wasn't something <laughs> Yeah, sinister. no funny business going on out here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so cool. much. Thank you. I'm glad we got some time to do this. Absolutely. Awesome. And we will absolutely take you up on your offer to come back annually to check on the progress. No, you need to. Well, I appreciate what you guys do as well. <laughs>